Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Greg Saris' own personal past is tied directly to the generations who have come before him, living on the land they have lived on and speaking the language they have spoken since time immemorial. Saris, the chairman of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, articulates that connection in a series of essays collected in his memoir, Becoming Story, a journey among seasons, places, trees, and ancestors. We'll hear about his book and its message coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau traveled to central Alberta this week for a historic signing of a land claim settlement. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the government is paying out one of the largest settlements made to Canadian First Nation. The Siksaga First Nation east of Calgary lost about half of its land in a fraudulent deal with the Canadian government more than a century ago. That after the government broke a Blackfoot Treaty promise. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the signing this week, which includes $1.3 billion, is to right a wrong from the past. This uh, allows us now uh, to move forward on solider footing, having uh, undone a little bit of the broken trust of many years, of recognizing the harm that we did generations ago, but understanding as well that as large as the settlement is, it can't undo the loss, the trauma, the intergenerational impacts of uh, what was done by Canada. For his part, Sixaga Chief Ore Crowfoot says it's now about moving forward. It's about renewing that treaty. You know, the treaty took place uh, 145 years ago. A lot of, a lot of the uh, promises in those treaties were broken. But now it's about having that relationship, rebuilding that relationship, rebuilding that understanding. Crowfoot says the settlement won't make up for the past wrongs, but it will make a difference in people's lives and provide opportunities that they didn't have before. Each member of the First Nation will receive $20,000 from the settlement. Money will also be spent on issues that are important to the reserve, such as policing on the First Nation. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. The Federal Bureau of Investigation is using the Navajo language to draw attention to unsolved homicide and missing person cases on the Navajo Nation. 60-second radio ads have aired across Navajo land seeking information on a cold case, offering a reward and giving out a toll-free tip phone number. In 2020, field offices in Albuquerque and Phoenix issued posters in the Navajo language and later started including audio clips with them. Raul Buhanda is FBI special agent in charge. The initiative was really to try to reach uh, the communities a, a little better than we've done in the past. So what we're trying to focus on is trying to get the communication out there in a form that made sense. So we're great about talking and putting things together and putting messages out as far as an, as an organization. But we knew we were missing the one piece, which is that we weren't writing in the Navajo language, that we weren't communicating in the Navajo language. So our primary focus was to do just that. Buhanda says the ads were not successful in gathering information, but says the FBI will try again in its efforts to solve cold cases on the Navajo Nation. The ads aired in April and May on Navajo AM radio station KTNN. 
Tribal leaders from New Mexico met with top state officials Thursday in Albuquerque. They took part in an annual tribal summit to discuss issues facing their communities. Indian Affairs Cabinet Secretary Lynn Trujillo says the state is closely working with tribes, collaborating on policymaking and strengthening government-to-government partnerships. The agenda reviewed accomplishments and looked at future needs, including an outlook of the summer, water, drought, and wildfires. The summit was established in 2009 under the State Tribal Collaboration Act to ensure tribes are included in policymaking and funding priorities. It provides a framework for the state and tribes to work together to develop services and programs to serve the Native American community. There are 23 tribal nations in New Mexico. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department, providing complete convention and visitor planning services to Hispanic and Native American conventions. Information on convention and tourism services at ahcnm.org. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, whose culturally relevant clinical online MSW degree is available without leaving your community. Application can be made in three steps at online.nmhu.edu. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Greg Saris is one of the key figures in restoring the status of his tribe. At the same time, he's proven to be an accomplished writer, penning seven books of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. Saris is the chairman of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria and teaches creative writing in Native American studies at Sonoma State University. To add to his accomplishments, he is now out with a memoir a collection of essays that detail the cultural, environmental, and human influences on his life. In many ways, his personal experiences reflect the journey of the Miwok and Pomo tribes to maintain their cultural and political ties in their Northern California homelands. Today, we're going to talk with Greg Saris and have him read from his new memoir. And as always, we'd like to have you join our discussion. Give us a call with your questions or comments at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. On our show today is Greg Saris. He's speaking with us from Northern California. He is the chairman of the Federated Indians of the Great and Rancheria and a writer and an educator. He's also an enrolled member of the Federated Indians of the Great and Rancheria. Chairman Saris, always a pleasure to talk with you. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Uh, Sean, thank you for having me. Uh, good morning, or is it afternoon where you get where you are? I don't know. Well, it's just about that midday. You can kind of call it either or. Chairman, I think the last time we talked was back in 2016. I had an opportunity to visit uh, the Great Rancheria community, and you were a very gracious host. So I want to thank you again. I really appreciate that. Well, come back, Sean. Well, we, we have more to show you. So. <laughs> I will. I certainly will. Well, Chairman, let's get into this. Your new memoir, the title is Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors, just published in April. Congratulations on a wonderful book. I enjoyed reading it. 
Uh, thank you, Sean. Yes, it was uh, sort of a collection of essays, some of which I wrote, you know, nearly seven, eight, nine years ago. But uh, yeah, yeah, they're uh, I, I'm really happy with the book and happy that people are enjoying it. So yeah. Well, tell us more. You are a very busy man. Lots of projects, responsibilities. Where did you find the time to write such an in-depth memoir? Well, you know, I um, for me, um, the the whole idea, I think, of being an Indian person, or at least a, you know, and a member of my tribe, is um, I have multiple responsibilities. I mean, whatever you know or whatever you experience, whether it be from the elders or from the the institution schools or whatever, you kind of are responsible to do all of those things. And um, it does, you know, you do get tired, <clears throat> but I, I think about, you know, what my ancestors went through to get me here. And um, I then I sit here and Sean say, well, you know, I really can't complain. And I think as a, as a tribal leader, um, it's really Im- important because um, you're obviously one of the most, if not the most visible person in the tribe, uh, in your tribe, um, to be a model and to talk about the ways in which we must continue our culture, use our culture to inform the things we're doing today. But in the process, we also have to examine who we are and negotiate the past, the present, um, with the place in which we live, the place that we come from. Remember, we come from a place. Others come to it, uh, outsiders. But we come from a place. And what does that mean? What, what you know, and in many ways, um, our people, like many indigenous people, have been made strangers in their homeland. So how do we uh, find home again? How do we be home? And then be responsible for it. More than ever, um, I think the pressure, the responsibility, if you will, Sean, is upon us to use what we know from our ancestors to somehow create a roadmap for a sustainable future um, uh, where we live, but certainly that roadmap then as a model for others to use. So when I, a lot of these essays all have to do with me um, in a very personal way, negotiating all these sorts of things like what does it mean to uh, what do you think about when you're a part of a season or what do you think about when, uh, you know, I got an assignment, for instance, to write about redwood trees. But for, for me um, and for many of us, redwood tree isn't just a tree, but it, it evokes stories. Um, once again, the landscape for us people, indigenous people, has, is our sacred text, whether it's a stand of redwood trees or a stream or um, a river or an outcropping of rocks, those are always associated with stories. And so how do I live in this place and think about those stories and what I'm doing in the modern world and who I am in the modern world? Um, mm-hmm. So uh, the, the essays are all those kinds of things to begin finding a way to really talk about what it means to be home, what it means to be in a in a place, in an environment, in a place that is our cultural and historical environment. So um, uh-huh. that's what I, I mean I was trying to do. Now, of course, being the chairman of a, a tribe, and I'm serving my 15th consecutive term, and I think that's maybe a near record in Indian country, but, um, <laughs> uh, and then, you know, trying to 
<clears throat> write and teach and all of those things. And I'm also president of the uh, business board overseeing the daily operations of our casino resort. So it's a lot to negotiate. But again, um, Sean, if our ancestors could do that, then we certainly can. An elder once told me, uh, Mrs. Parrish, she was a, a dreamer. She led all of our dances and she had, you know, 15 children and she wove baskets and worked in the apple cannery and all these things. And I used to could play the piano and with a second grade education. And Sean, I used to say to her, Auntie, how do you do all these things? And she said, there ain't no such a word as can't. <laughs> and, um, uh, it's wonderful, uh, wonderful. Chairman, one I, thing that yeah. uh, what really impressed me uh, about your book is you do such a good job of, of weaving this compelling narrative, and you move adeptly between old stories and legends of the Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo people, and then you'll share a really compelling and fascinating anecdote from your own childhood, and then you're back to the history of your people, culture, spirituality, you broach environmental issues, and... I think as an author, that's really tough to do. And your book offers something for every reader. Was that your goal to write a memoir that resonates with a wide range of perspectives and interests? Well, Sean, thank you for what you just said. I'm going to uh, get a recording of this and put it on the back cover of my next edition of this book. <laughs> but, but um, uh, you know, I don't think an author can really sit um, and think this is or have an in, well, you have intentions, of course, but I think an integrated way of it's how I, you know, when I look back, because somebody asked me, uh, what did you learn from this? And I look at all these essays, um, and I look at much of my writing, Sean, and, and I think that it is my attempt to really say, what does it mean to be an integrated human being? Um, as particularly as Indian people, uh, we didn't see things, the world, separate from one another. Everything was connected to everything else. Um, we had a kind of we relationship, not just with the outside world, but within ourselves. And um, I think what I do is I, I kind of almost instinctually um, maybe connect all of these things. And, of course, I'm only connecting a few of them. But um, I, I can't separate my personal experience from my life as an adopted, a person who was adopted into a white family first and then, uh, you know, grew up among a lot of the Indian elders, my elders, and uh, all of that sort of thing, and, um, and had a kind of relationship with the place and the stories that I've heard. They all go together to create kind of a sense of meaning. And if these essays are anything, these mem the memoir essays, they're kind of, if you will, a dialogue that I'm having between all of these things, the things that I've learned from the elders, the landscape, my own experience. They're not separate. And too much in the Western world, I think, um, you know, you write about a subject or something, and it's separate from other things. And more right, than ever, if right. we're going, I think if we're going to survive, it has to be integrated somehow. We have to feel our connection. And um, I'm glad that you believe or see that I've done that, but um, I, I think it's a way of looking at the world. Uh, you know, um, It is, it is. What I 
and and it's a way that we as native people look at the world right because it doesn't follow that classic chronological timeline that we see so often in in western literature right exactly that you said it better than 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 i just did but yes that's exactly right and you know i don't know you know when we've listened to the elders or i've listened to my elders here mabel mckay or mrs parish they would always talk around and around and around things and it seemed that a lot of the they were going off on tangents, but ultimately, all of those things were connected. So um, they would tell a story, and it would go around and around, and maybe at a somehow deep level, because that's one of the things I did do. I did listen um, to a lot of the old folks, and I don't know why they would. Maybe they sometimes I think they either picked me out or they put, fixed me and put a hex on me so that I would be learning and have all of these things, but uh, I would listen, listen to them. And um, maybe that had some kind of influence in the way that, um, uh, certainly that I see the world, that's for sure. But mm-hmm. how I translate how I see the world in writing, if that makes any sense, Sean. Yeah, it, it certainly does, Chairman. And listeners, we are talking with Chairman Greg Saris of the Grayton Rancheria in Northern California, and he just published a new memoir, Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. If you want to give us a call, if you have a question for Chairman or any insights or comments, please do 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. You are listening to Native America Calling, and we'll be back right after this short break. Part of the $1 billion in federal ARPA funds distributed to agricultural businesses is going to help smaller, independent meat processing operations. The money will help tribal facilities that suffered setbacks during the pandemic and aims to help diversify the industry. On the next Native America Calling, we'll hear how that money is applied toward keeping a vital economic engine going. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. You're tuned in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Today we're talking with Greg Saris, chairman of the Federated Indians of Grayton Rancheria. He's written a memoir, Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. If you'd like to join our conversation, give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848. Chairman, there are so many rich components in this memoir, and I think what I really enjoyed uh, in many ways the most were, were your personal stories, though, about, about coming of age in Northern California. And uh, you had a little bit of a wild streak in you as a kid. You got yourself in a few rough and tumble situations. And I'm thinking Sonoma County in those days, it was a tough place to grow up, huh? Yeah, it was. Uh, well, I, I mean, for, for some of us. And, um, 
you know, when you're, uh, Sean, I was sort of an adopted, you know, as I told you, I was an adopted kid and then, um, they had their own kids and I was put out and stuff like that. And, uh, it was, you know, pretty rough. And of course kids get, um, angry and, um, uh, all of us so-called rough and tumble kids and the young people today, when they're in trouble and doing things, they're really saying, see me, see me. And I think, I'm alive. Do I matter? And um, and with uh, you know larger culture of Indian people, we're already made to feel marginalized. But then our kids, on top of that, um, are we don't see ourselves represented. We feel invisible, and we act out. And I certainly acted out. I got in you know fights and really didn't go to much of uh, eighth, ninth, and tenth grades. I was in trouble <laughs> a lot. You know, doing the stuff on the street and. I jokingly say, Sean, I have people tell me not to say this, but I tell this to young people, um, you know, I sniffed a lot of glue. And, uh, you know, I mean, look at, you know, 30 years as tribal chairman, a Ph.D., seven books, movies, all of that sort of thing. And uh, I'm only doing that on a quarter of a brain. So stay away from glue and think what you could do. You know. <laughs> School of hard, hard knocks for sure. And, and Chairman, you mentioned earlier that you were adopted and, and you didn't learn about your Native identity until later in life. And that's um, really interesting. And, and how do you think that shapes uh, your concept of identity? And, and you incorporated that in the book as well, right? Yes, yes, I do. Um, well, you know, uh, I'm older, in the, born in the 50s, and uh, Sean, in those days, they would always put the race of the parent on the birth certificate, particularly if a kid was up for adoption. And uh, <clears throat> for father, it just said unknown, non-white, but the narrative said the father, they have a narrative there for the, you know, the prospective buyer or adoptive doctor of the kid. And um, it just said, uh, father likely a Mexican, of Mexican heritage. But remember, uh, in those days and still today in California, many of us, first of all, have Spanish last names. And uh, anybody that was brown in this state, they always thought we were uh, Mexican or Spanish or something. Um, I jokingly say until there were casinos, nobody knew there were California Indians. But um, so uh, I didn't know until, you know, my te- late teens, early in my 20s, I always thought I was, my mother was white, or my natural mother was white, and my father, natural father was Mexican. But I took up in, in the neighborhood, then when I was out running around the streets with Mexican and Indian kids, we all kind of ran together. And, um, you know, as it turns out, I was re- related to a lot of the Indian kids that I was running around with. Uh, in fact, I went out with a girl and Ninth and tenth grade, which has become a huge tribal joke, who turned out to be my second cousin, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, but uh, that, of course, happens in Indian country. Uh, but uh, okay. so uh, you know, I and then finding, uh, but for some reason, it was really bizarre. Um, you know, when I was in the Indian homes, a lot of the elders, uh, and Mabel McKay was one of them, would kind of get me aside, I guess, because I listened, and I, they would tell me all these things, and I, you know, all many stories, and I listened. Also, as an adopted kid, not knowing where you belong, and looking for a home in many ways, you're listening, you're, you're looking around, you're paying attention to where and how you might fit in. So, um, maybe that was why I listened, I, I don't know. But uh, okay. when I found out, you know, I, who my dad was, uh, and who I was related to, 
um, you know, I was all excited. I kind of believed that, you know, that, uh, wow, you know, the Indian in the blood all of a sudden, you know, that, so, you know, I'm, I'm Indian. And I remember going to Mabel McKay, the great dreamer, basket weaver, who was such an influence on me. And I told her, and she didn't seem really impressed. And she said, you're never going to be more than your experience of what you know. Oh, and, yeah. um, and I, okay. I really started thinking about that. Luckily, much of my experience had been growing up among my own family and stuff, but you know, she wasn't going to say suddenly I was going to, you know, um, I think what she was saying is in some ways, blood does not presuppose point of view. Um, yeah. I think we can see right. that certainly in politics and elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Mabel, uh, Mabel McKay, the Pomo basket maker, uh, you, you write about her a lot. She has, uh, she's, she's mentioned frequently in the book and, uh, she really took you under her wing, didn't she? And, and, and just provided you with a lot of wisdom and, and a lot of knowledge and a lot of education that you couldn't get in school, right? Oh my God. I, I believe, and I believe many of us Indian people will can say this. I got two masters and a PhD at Stanford, and I will say this, that that woman with a second-grade education had more wisdom and knowledge in her little finger than all those Stanford professors put together. <laughs> and um, I, 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 I think, in many ways, I look back now and I think, my God, she, you know, fixed me or did something to me when I was 19 and coming out of, you know, pretty rough, as you mentioned, childhood. Um, I... Uh, she said uh, uh, that all that's happened to you, you have two choices. You can let holes open up in your heart, and you can let poison and hatred grow there, and you can poison and hate other people, or you can use all that as medicine to doctor and heal. And then she gave me that prayer basket, and little prayer basket, and she said, you're going to be a leader among the people one day. And I thought, yeah, lady, and the sun's going to come up in the West. And of course, now looking back, many years, many many years later, I think, God, it was. You know, not only was she right, but she probably put a spell on me and fixed me. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, here I am. Um, in many ways, most ways, thanks to Mabel McKay. Yeah, yeah, it just sounds like such a such a wonderful, wonderful person. Chairman, we have a caller, Mary, listening in Warm Springs on KWSO. Mary, thanks for calling in. Hey, Nick Maitsky. Good morning to both of you. Um, I've been listening uh, as you've been discussing different things about the book, and I, I'm really interested in finding this book. Um, and that's why I like Native America calling. You learn about new authors, new music, new subjects, and I, I just think it's a great service to Native America to put that out there. But one of the things that resonated with me is when you talked about how things are connected. I think so many times in Native America, well, other cultures as well, people don't realize your spirituality, your work life, your home life, your cultural life. All of these things are impacted and are connected when they get disconnected, like you talked about being adopted, you're disconnected. If you're in, if you have an addiction, no matter what it is—alcohol, drugs, gambling, um, shopping—it it throws the balance off, and you, it affects everything else because it's connected. And I think many 
times people don't see that. They don't realize that. And I think you're very fortunate to have an elder that invested so much time into you and letting you know who you could be, who you are. And I I just think that's an important point for people to remember in their lives that everything is connected. You can't compartmentalize things. Oh, I, I, I do, you know, I do that on Sunday or I do that another time that that's not what I'm doing now. Well, it's, it is part of your overall spirituality. I think that's what I, what resonated with me. We don't, Put that aside. It, it, it affects everything that we do, and I think that's an important point that you shared. Well, Mary, thanks for that call, and appreciate the warm words in regard to Native America calling, and you just did such a wonderful job of summarizing the theme of Chairman Saris's book. And Chairman, I understand um, you're prepared to read a passage from the book, aren't you? Uh, yes, it's, uh, I'll, I'll try to uh, do it. It's, it's from the first thing, but I just want to thank Mary. And I, uh, one of the things that Mary said that was, you know, resonated, and she really got the idea of the book, is that uh, so many of us will go to church on Sunday or we'll just go to our dances and our powwows, and then we'll, you know, be disconnected the rest of the time. Our life is, has to be our church, and our church has to be our life. And that's a, a, a wonderful I think, way to think about things. But anyway, um, I'll read a short passage, Sean, well, a chapter. Um, the first one is very short, and uh, it's about frost. And I think you'll get a sense, uh, it'll take me a few minutes here to read it, but it, I think you'll get a sense of how, again, I've integrated these various things. Um, so anyway, this is from Seasons, and it's the first one, and it's called Winter. Um, and I'll jump here a little bit, I'll cut it a little bit. Uh, Winter, not ancient stories about the time before this one, when the animals were still people, before Coyote messed things up with his hapless machinations, nor the dark room, warm but still black as the cold midwinter night outside, with nothing but the floating voice of the storyteller impersonating the people in the stories, crafty Coyote's devious whispering, blue jay's shrill admonishments, frog's old man wrath, quail, the most beautiful of all people, her gentle as brook water songs, none of those things, but cows, feeding the cows, their cloven hooves planted in the frost-covered earth, nostrils blowing steam above the unfastened veil of alfalfa. I would stand warming my hands in my coat pockets for hours watching the cows. I had a good eye then, not just for an old cow's swollen knee, or maybe a roomy eye, but even the faintest rise in her hide, indicating the presence of a grub. And the alfalfa, too, it was best if you could see dried purple flowers, sign of an early June harvest, after just enough warm weather. I was seven. I had no cows of my own, but followed the local dairyman. I wanted a cow. No Indians at home, either. I was adopted. At the time, I knew nothing of my birth father, Emilio Hilario, or my Cosmiwak heritage. That would come 20 years down the road. And I would hear about the things and the old-timers did, winter activities, storytelling, for instance, renowned pomo basket weaver, and Dr. Mabel McKay, who I was fortunate to have known, explain the rules about the ancient time stories. Only tell them in winter, 
after the first frost and before the last frost. Think about them then, their meanings, not in summer when there's snakes and things in the grass and you need to pay attention to where you're going. But that has nothing to do with memory, what surfaces from experience, as I recall winter now. There was a man named Tommy Baca. He had only one arm and he was a house painter. My mother said a thousand times no one could mix color like Tommy. He was a stocky man of medium height with a broad, handsome face. He had thick, wavy black hair. He smiled a lot. I marveled at how he kept papers and such tucked against his side, just below his armpit, with the stub of his missing arm, and the way the stub would move, seemingly of its own volition, when he was excited, though I was careful not to let him find me looking. Don't stare at people, my mother snapped. He was Indian, Coast Miwok. If I knew as much then, I don't remember, and certainly not the Coast Miwok part. What interested me was that he had cows. And because my parents were friends with him, I had access to the cows. Once his son, Mark, about seven, like me, asked, Why do you always look at Dad's cows? And I felt as if it was a bad thing, like when other kids called me adopted. I'm not clear about the next part, what happened exactly. Maybe because for a month or more, I was on cloud nine. Did I hear my parents and Tommy Baca talking in the kitchen after work one night? Did I hear about it that way before the afternoon out at Tommy's when he said, pick out the one you want, take your pick? A Guernsey and Herefords crossbred steer. I kept him in the field adjacent to my parents' house. He grew horns, but he was gentle, careful even, when he tossed his head to shoe flies or strew a flake of hay over the ground. Well, there was the one time head lowered when he charged Alan Cheney, chasing him out of the field. But no one cared, since everyone knew Alan was a bully and had no doubt provoked Harry. That was so long ago, a million stories ago. Of course, I found out who my father was, and now I could look back and understand things I hadn't the faintest idea of before. The connections between me and Tommy Baca, for instance. His grandmother, Maria Copa, sang for my great-great-grandfather, Tom Smith, the renowned Coast Miwok medicine man, as he doctored the sick. And I can imagine them along the coast and through inland valleys traveling in a wagon and later in a Model T Ford. That box of the stuff of history spills. The ancient villages fall out. Olimpali and Alaguali for Maria Copa, and Petaluma and Olamichica for Tom Smith. Then the Spanish galleons and English steamers, crossed oceans, wars, marriages, priests and soldiers, adobe and brick, overalls and Panama hats, and still clamshell disc beads and flicker feathers. And I see in that chance meeting of an adopted boy and a one-armed house painter the miraculous web that is all of time, nothing more, nothing less all-inclusive. But it's memory that prevails still. Memory trounces this miraculous web. That is, if memory is not the vantage point from which I gaze upon it. No, not even Grandpa Tom's songs left on wax cylinders, or this, his ancient time stories left in a graduate student's dissertation, not beads and feathers. Winter, it's feeding the cows, feeding Harry and frost. The earth is blanketed with frost, a quarter inch thick at least, on the bare tree limbs on rocks. Harry, too, is covered, topped as if with a layer of frosting. Harry steps into the sun to munch the alfalfa I just tossed over the fence, and I see the frost so cold, so powerful, begin to fall from his back, barely perceptible, trifling dust, 
And again, I'm not sure what happened exactly, whether I overheard fattened and spring grass in a conversation between my parents and Tommy Baca that night or months before and didn't understand or chose not to. But at that moment, I got it, understood the whole story, what the words would mean after the last frost from summer. I might protest, but it would do no good. Never mind the purple blooms in the alfalfa. What a complicated and frightening world replaces winter. That's from the first uh, Yeah, I remember that passage really well. And, and I appreciate you reading that one because it, it really does, I think, set the tone for the whole book. Listeners, what you just heard was a passage from Chairman Greg Saris's new book, Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. If you've got a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. And we'll be back right after this break. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing about the new memoir out from Greg Saris, the chairman of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria. It's a personal portrait that also sheds light on his tribe's journey to maintain their status. We're having a great conversation, and the only thing missing is you. So give us a call to share your thoughts. 1-800-996-2848. Chairman, there are so many really intriguing people in your book, and, and some are very mysterious. Others are, I would say, kind of tragically flawed. Some offer great wisdom and clarity. And then there are a few that are just plain crazy. <laughs> but I think my favorite uh, was the person named Eileen, and you mentioned her earlier. She started out as uh, a romantic interest. I don't want to give too much away for somebody who hasn't read the book yet, but uh, you were both very young at the time, and then your relationship evolved as you got older. And I just have to ask you, as a fan, where is Eileen now, and do you two keep in touch? Uh, well, uh, I'll, uh, without giving away the whole, and I don't even mention this in the book, but uh, she was, in fact, uh, and I changed her name just slightly enough, uh, she was the um, uh, obviously the one that I mentioned earlier, who I had a relationship with, who turned out, you know, to be my second right. cousin. And yeah. uh, um, uh, so uh, she sadly uh, has passed away a couple years ago. Um, you know, she uh, had a you know a, a difficult life in many ways, a challenging life, and um, she 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 has passed away. But I, I kept in touch with her. Um, she, you know, had diabetes and things like that, and I would, uh, you know, wheel her around in, in the casino and uh, in a wheelchair, and I, I never lost touch with her. And there was, you know, always, always a, a fond spot in my heart for her, um, and, and always, always will be. Uh, we shared so much together as kids, you know, her mother chasing me out of the house with a broom and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and uh, 
her mother grew to like me later. In fact, her mother was one of the ones that had called me and her mother's sisters when uh, to get us going to get us our rights back. Uh, but um, but uh, yeah, she's and I see her brother regularly. Um, uh, but um, you know, she has passed away, and uh, I, uh, I it was very sad for me and. Um, whenever any of the folks in my family, and we have we have a lot of challenging times, again, with the intergenerational trauma from colonization and the stuff that we're all um, trying to, you know, reconcile and deal with, um, uh, all the, every time somebody passes away, uh, it's stuff lost, but reminds me of the work, particularly when our young people pass away, uh, reminds me of the work we have to do as leaders. Um, and uh, and what resources we have uh, to take care of one another. Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. our, my tribe now <clears throat> has a successful casino resort, a successful business, and it's imperative that we take care of ourselves and use the finances to have the time to heal. When you're scared, when you're poor, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to eat at night, it's hard to sit there and, you know, begin thinking about, um, well, now, how do I sit down and deal with the past that got me in this place? You're too busy trying to live and deal with it. But now with time and some of the programs we have, and I remind my people that no amount of money can undo the trauma of our past. Um, we have to do that ourselves and take the opportunity. Money can help us feel secure, which we haven't felt before, but it can't mm-hmm. undo what is so endemic in our, our, among our people and, and so many Indian people, uh, right. and that is the trauma. I, uh, there were, at the time of contact, Sean, about 20,000 of us, and today, um, of the nearly 1,500 enrolled members, all of, our, all of us trace ourselves back to one of 14 survivors all of whom were women who were concubines or wives of the early Americans. And what story does that tell, Sean? I don't need to say much yeah, more. Yeah, And I, 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 I even took a note of that when that's mentioned in the book, that the, the current membership of the tribe all traces their roots to those 14 survivors, and that was just fascinating. And Chairman, I, I'm so sorry to uh, condolences with regard to um, this person. I, her name was not Eileen. Obviously, you, you changed her name, but... Uh, she just sounded like such an interesting person and such a, a beautiful soul. So again, condolences on her passing. And uh, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the Great and Rancheria in, in contemporary times. And I know that uh, you had your federal recognition restored back in 2000. And Chairman, you were a big part of making that possible. Uh, how did you first become involved in those efforts? Um, well, it was a... Um... Uh, 30 years ago, this last April, in fact, Eileen, if we'll call her that, her mother and her aunt called me. Uh, we, we were illegally terminated with a, uh, in 1958. There's the California Indian Rancheria Termination Act. It was basically an updated version of the Dawes Act, whereby tribes had the option of owning their land. Of course, it was ridiculous here in California because our rancheria is ours because it was, you know, 15.5 acres. It was mostly uninhabitable to begin with, but, um, you know, they, we were uh, illegally terminated. Uh, 
it had to be by consensus. And they uh, came, the federal agents came in August when we were out picking fruit, working in the fields, and there were a couple old men left there. And when you ask a couple older Indian guys, well, would you like to own your land? It sounds like a good deal, but they signed away. It wasn't by consensus. Long story short, many years went by. Um, we did stay in touch, our families, with one another. Um, but uh, then uh, another tribe that was federally recognized came down into our territory and was going to build a big casino resort with the floating casinos on the bay and all this kind of stuff. And uh, Eileen Vance, my, my people of the elders in my tribe, called and said, you know, I was just beginning my teaching career at UCLA, and they said, you're a smart guy, come and help us. So, of course, uh, that began the journey. I uh, co-authored a bill. It took me um, eight years to get it through, or co-authored with our attorneys, uh, to get it through Congress. President Clinton signed it on uh, December 27, 2000. Um, We're one of the last tribes to be restored by an act of Congress, uh, thankfully. I mean, lucky for us. But um, in any event, uh, we weren't going to go the casino route, but uh, we were. They restored us as a federally recognized American Indian tribe, but no land. They didn't give us the land back. And for a couple of years, we tried different things, but we couldn't afford land in this area, and we'd have to buy it ourselves. So, um, you know, people began to discuss the C word, not cancer casino. And with our um, area location near the Bay area, uh, we knew it would be lucrative. But we said right away, uh, we'll only do this if it will be something that will become a platform for social justice and environmental stewardship and benefit Indian and non-Indian alike. And I know that all sounds antithetical with a casino, but we've walked the talk. We've given the local governments in the eight and a half years the casino's been open $180 million in mitigation for, for fire departments, whatever they need, and $60 million in charities. In fact, the most recent that you may have heard of is uh, President Drake of the University of California wanted to let all California Indians go to UC tuition-free. But for those California Indians that aren't from federally recognized tribes, he couldn't help them because of Proposition 209, you can't give special treatment. So long again, long story short, Sean, um, he approached me, and uh, what we did is I said, how much money do you need to cover the fees for the non-federally recognized California Indians uh, for their tuition and for graduate school professional fees and so forth? And he said $2 million, and my tribe stepped forward and said, we'll give you the $2.5 million uh, ongoing so that all California Indians can go to the University of California tuition-free. And, you know, that's wow. just an example of one of the things we've done that is precedent-setting. And uh, we're the, one of the first, if not the first tribe, that did uh, just signed a precedent-setting uh, as I said, 50-50 co-management agreement with Point Reyes National Seashore, a 27,000-acre national park. So we will have 50-50 influence on the restoration and use of that park, and uh, I think it's a model that other tribes can be uh, using or looking at going forward. So, yeah, uh, and again, in our TANF programs, we supplement with uh, casino revenues, monies, so that all Indians in Marin and Sonoma counties can use our services and after-school programs and so forth. 
we yeah, so much going on there. Walk the talk. Really, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really impressive. All all of the 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 projects and and just the outreach and just so much uh, you folks are doing up there in Northern California and supporting other tribes as well. And and Chairman, uh, for other tribal leaders um, that will read your book, uh, what do you think they can learn from from your triumphs, your accomplishments? your mistakes as well, your observations? What do you think they'll get from it? Well, I, I think one of the things, um, if, if nothing else, if I may say so, and I'm a little uh, you know, uh, shy about ever telling any leaders or sovereign group what to do, but I, I think that um, one of the things you, they can take is a way of thinking about their own people and their politics and how politics have to be, and your politics and your ethics have to be predicated on a, on a we kind of thinking, not us, them, but we. How do you, how do you listen to people? How do you understand all that you are and use your own experience, your own experience, your failures, your successes to be a teacher as much as a leader? A leader, and we don't see this enough today, certainly in national politics uh, or elsewhere, sometimes not enough in Indian country either, but um, we have to be leaders. We have to be just not out to please people um, or uh, somehow just try to get people to vote for us or promise them things, especially if we have resources, financial resources, a casino or whatever. We have to be leaders. We have to remember, think about the world today, the condition it's in, and how can we take our resources and our people, no matter what we have, to make things better and always do that. And sometimes people don't want to listen. Um, they don't want to hear. But you must, to be a leader, you must also be a teacher. And having a broad, uh, from my book, I think you can gain something about what it means to have a broad, multi-leveled understanding of your people, your culture, and the land from which you come. So I think that's what you could take there, I hope. I hope. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of tribal leaders could really benefit from reading the book. And uh, Sherman, any advice to aspiring Native authors listening today who have an interest in writing their own memoirs? Yes, uh, uh, what I, I tell our young people all the time. Um, too often, we touched on this a little earlier, Sean, um, where we go to school and we're influenced by Western ways of thinking and all of that and, you know, what it's what it means to be an Indian or not to be an Indian and all this sort of thing. I mean, Hollywood's still so stuck on, you know, everything that we're doing, even the positives and stuff. It's really good that Indian stuff is out there. I mean, uh, there's some, you know, interesting shows, but they tend to always be, um, you know, Plains Indians oriented, following, you know, th things that broad Americans uh, can understand. And um, I remember when I first started writing the stories for Grand Avenue, which, of course, became my HBO miniseries, professors and others were saying, who are these people? You know, they didn't recognize an Indian person unless he or she were on a pinto horse chasing buffaloes. Um, so, um, but my... My advice, based on what I've just said, Sean, is that you must believe that your story is your power. Your story is your power. Don't be afraid 
to write your story. Don't be afraid to show the ways in which you too are becoming and extending what it means to be an Indian person today in this country. Don't let other dis- definitions of Indianness or experience define you. Your experience, where you come from, and what you know is your power and will be the thing that will help and empower other people. Have the courage to own your truth, your story, and to tell it. Don't be afraid to be naked in front of others with your story. It's your power. Uh, It's so inspiring, Chairman. And how can listeners learn more about the book? Um, They can certainly, they can order it from their local bookstore. It's Heyday Press in Berkeley, H-E-A-Y-D-A-Y, Heyday Press. Uh, And they can certainly order it from Heyday Press um, in Berkeley. Uh, They can get it from Amazon. It's online. And again, its title is Becoming Story. And of course, my name is Greg Ferris. Um, so it's, it's out there and available, um, and I'd be glad to sign anybody's copies uh, or do whatever I can. I'll talk to you online and uh, I, whatever I can do. First of all, of course, I'd like that people will read the book, but I hope that the book in turn, as we've talked, Sean, will encourage other Indian people to boldly write their own story. I think it certainly will, and... I wish we had more time, Chairman, because you are such a fascinating person and you are just so multidimensional. And I know you briefly mentioned some of your HBO productions and you just, you know, you have high level credits in the entertainment industry. You are an author, you're an actor. And uh, so maybe some point in the future, we can get you back on and, and have another conversation to learn that about that whole part of your experience as well. But until then, I definitely want to thank our guest, Chairman Greg Saris, for taking us Uh, through a journey with his new memoir, Becoming Story, a journey among seasons, places, trees, and ancestors. Join us again next week for another list of important and engaging shows. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our National Underwriting Sales Director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our Chief Operations Officer. The President and CEO of Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a fun, safe weekend. Support by the Facundo Valdez School of Social Work at Highlands University, now offering the opportunity to earn a culturally relevant, clinical, Master of Social Work degree without leaving your own community. This online MSW degree focuses on a small, supportive model with a clinical concentration. Students in rural areas, tribal communities, and or who live far from campus are given preference. Application can be made in three easy steps. More info and application at online.nmhu.edu. Hey, hey, Torchimna Krishna, 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.